Okay, we're doing uh, selections of Rambam to see the uh, mystical side or the hidden side that is concealed in Rambam because the sages of his time were all studying Kabbalah. They were all Kabbalists. So it stands to reason that Rambam also studied Kabbalah, but he doesn't explicitly quote from the Kabbalah like the others did. But you can see it when you, when you read between the lines, as we'll soon see. This is the laws of the prohibition against believing or worshipping idols. And it's a big section of many pages, many chapters. But it begins as follows. In the days of Enish, which is pretty early on in history, Enish was uh, Noah's grandfather, so in the days of Enish, the people made a terrible mistake and the wisdom of the leaders was corrupted and Enish was among them. What was their mistake? They reasoned as follows. Since God created the stars or the planets and they control the uh, behavior of the earth, of the world, and God placed them in the high places in the heavens and gave them honor. And they are servants who serve God's purpose. It is therefore appropriate to praise them and to glorify them, to show them respect. And they assumed that this would be what God wants. Just like a king wants his ministers to be honored. And by honoring the ministers, you're actually honoring the king logical, reasonable. So they reasoned that God is the same. Once they came up with this idea, they started to build monuments to the stars and to offer up sacrifices, to praise them, to glorify them with words, and to bow towards them in order to fulfill what they thought was God's will. Now what's, what's remarkable about the statement is that Rambam is saying that all idol worship began with good intention. It was not a rebellion against God. It was not a rejection of God. It was what they thought God would want. And it's a pretty reasonable argument. You honor a king, you honor his ministers. And this was the essence of idolatry. So that the leaders, those who understood the purpose behind it would tell you that they are not claiming that there is no God other than the stars. On the contrary, everybody knows that there's only one God. But in their foolishness, they made the mistake to believe that this behavior is what God wants, that this uh, foolish behavior is what God wants. So what is the great mistake what is the terrible mistake that they made? You know, with a little bit of uh, effort, we could convince ourselves that that's a pretty good idea. Uh, why not? There are people who worship the earth as God's creation. They're not saying the earth is the only God. They're saying if God bothered to create the earth and make it so important, you know, Mother Earth and it supports all life and so on, well, why, why shouldn't you uh, recognize it and uh, show a little gratitude? Could that possibly upset God? I don't know, maybe it pleases him. 
So at first glance, the mistake, this great mistake, was not so much what they were arguing, but the great mistake was that they made assumptions. That was the mistake. You don't make assumptions about God. You can't say, just as a, as a human king wants his ministers honored, God would want the same. How can you make such an assumption? Now, of course, Torah is full of such comparisons. God is like a king, and that's why you have to blow shofar on Rosh Hashanah to coronate him, to be the king for another year. And you can't have a king without a people, so we are his people. But this is God talking. If God comes along and says, you know, I'm like a king, and I want this, I want that, fine. Then God is explaining himself by using the analogy of a king. But for people to make such an assumption on their own, that's a big mistake. But we'll soon see what the mistake really is. Rambam then goes on to say, Halacha Beis. After many days, after a length of time, there arose among the people false prophets who said that God commanded and told them to worship the star or the planets and to bring offerings and sacrifices to them. And then they went ahead and they built temples and they made uh, forms, graven images of stars, of planets, and so on, in order to bow to them. And all the people followed their, believed it, they were gullible, and they started to behave accordingly. And they made up out of their imagination. And they made up different signs, different shapes, different pictures, and said, this is the form or the shape of a particular star or a particular constellation, which they were told and shown in their prophecy. And so in their temples, they started drawing or, or creating forms, statues, and they used different trees. They put it on the tops of the mountains, on high places, and people gathered to bow and worship these forms or these statues. And they said to the people, these false prophets, that this image that they're bowing to is capable of doing them good or doing them harm, and therefore they should be served and feared. Now the priests of these idols, these false prophets, would say that by serving the idol, you will be more successful, you'll be more fruitful. And then other liars came along, and they claimed that the star itself, the idol itself, had come to them and demanded to be worshipped. So now we have three stages so far. The first stage was where people innocently assumed that this would please God, because this is what God would want. The second stage was false prophets. Now, this was no longer an innocent mistake. These were charlatans. These were liars. They came along and they said that God appeared to them and that God actually said, yes, in fact, I want you to worship this idol and how to worship it. And that the idol, worshiping the idol, will make a difference. If you worship it correctly, you'll be successful. If you don't, the idol will cause harm. The third stage was that another set of liars came along and they said, the idol came to me 
and told me how we should worship it. So here's how Rambam puts it. They said that the star or the constellation or the angel representing that star or planet came and spoke to us and they told us how they want to be served, what we should and what we shouldn't do. Now this belief spread throughout the world. People worshipped statues, forms of different kinds and offered up sacrifices to them and bowed to them. In the course of time, God was completely forgotten so that they no longer recognized him at all. And the end result was that all the people knew only of the wooden image or the stone image and the temple to which they were accustomed from their youth. And it was this that they worshipped and in the name of this God they swore and so on. Now the wise, the Chachamim, of those generations, the wise among them, began to teach that there is no other God other than the star or the planet or the statues which they had formed. And so very few people were left in the world who recognized God at all, and they were Chanech, Mesushelach, Neyach, Shem, and Ever. And this is how the world was when Avraham Avinu came upon the scene. So by the time Avraham came around, which was approximately 2,000 years after Adam, right? I think Avraham was born in 1948, I think. So about 2,000 years later, God was completely forgotten. So what Rambam is saying here is really an answer to a perplexing question. God creates the world, speaks to Adam and Eve, speaks to Cain, speaks to Noah, and a few generations later, nobody knows? It's forgotten? How could that be? How could it be? It's not that long a time to forget something so major as creation, Garden of Eden, and the flood. I mean, these things are not uh, small events to be forgotten easily. So how did it happen? So the Rambam says, well, it can happen this way. You start by making an assumption about God. Then, over the course of time, you start to imagine that God actually told you to do this. Then, eventually, you start believing that the idol itself has been talking to you. And eventually, because you see the idol, you get familiar with it, and you forget what is not seen. So the visible, the tangible, obviously displaces the invisible and the intangible. So why bother with something you can't see when you've got it right there? You can touch it. You can take it home with you. You can buy another one. You know, if it breaks, you fix it. So by the time Avraham came around, God was completely forgotten. Now when the Rebbe analyzed this Rambam, his question basically was, what's the halacha? Well, there's a lot of writing for Rambam. What's the halacha? What are you telling us? What is this, a little history review? What is it? This is a book on halacha. Get to the halacha. Say they were people, they worshipped idols, they were bad. Next. It was a sin, you're not allowed to do it. What, what is this whole analysis of how it came to be? This doesn't belong in the book on halacha. So there doesn't seem to be a halachic relevance. What's the halachic implication here? 
What's the difference? Who lied about what and how long it took? So if this was like a little introduction to the laws of Avodah fine. But it's not. It's the first two halacha of Avodah And where's the halacha? Not an interesting thing. Rambam says that in the days of Enish, people made the assumption that God wants us to honor his ministers. Then, over many days, false prophets came and they said that God said to do it. What do you mean, over many days? Why is that relevant? What's the difference? First they said this, then they said this. They said it after many days. What is that telling us? What's the point of that? I think what Rambam is saying, if you're telling the truth, a person states a truth, tells the truth, the passage of time has no effect. Truth doesn't change in the course of time. But if you make an assumption, it's your own idea, it's your own opinion, with the course of time, it's almost inevitable you're going to have to start lying. Because you're going to have to bolster your argument, particularly since people are starting to question. Hey, you said worshiping the star is going to bring... That's not working. So they had to intensify the argument. Oh, no, no, don't, don't mess with the... God told me. And when that didn't work... <laughs> After the passage of more time, they had to again ratchet up the argument by saying, oh, the idol is very angry. He told me he's very upset. Now you're in trouble. So time is the enemy of falsehood. Time is not the enemy of truth. Truth becomes truer with passage of time. It was true yesterday, the day before, it's true today. Truth loves time. Truth gets stronger with time. But falsehood is afraid of time because time wears it down. And so it's inevitable that you have to keep upping the ante so that eventually, Rambam doesn't go that far, but eventually, after you say, this is what God probably wants, then you have to come along and say, oh, no, this, God demands this. Then you have to say, never mind God, the idol demands this. Eventually, you're going to have to start torturing people. Right? I mean, this, that, that's history. Eventually, in order to make people worship your idol, you're going to have to start torturing them, punishing them, slaughtering them. Because how else do you keep a lie going? So the religions all become violent eventually. They must. Oppressive, violent, so on. Communism was the same, because communism was also a religion. So first, they came up with a brilliant idea, and everybody loved it. And they said, wow, great idea! That is the best idea we've come up with in a long time. Within 10 years, they were killing people because you, you, know, you can only fool the people for so long and after you fool them, then you start killing them. Now Rambam goes on to talk a little bit about Avraham. When this boy grew up, Avraham, he began to examine in his mind, while still small, and was wondering day and night, and was surprised, he was puzzled. How is it possible that this planet is moving constantly without a battery? What makes the planet move? Every movement has to have a cause, a mover, and a shaker. So he sees the planet is constantly moving. What's moving it? 
And what is causing it to circle? Because a thing cannot move itself. But he had no teacher, and there was no one to explain it to him. He was surrounded in Ur Kasdim by idolatry and idol worshippers, including his mother and father. And so he grew up with it, but in his heart he began to question until he found the path of truth and he began to understand with proper understanding. And then he came to know that there is one God and he makes the planets move and he created them all and that there is no other God besides him. And then he realized that the whole world was mistaken and how they came to their mistake and how they had arrived at this false belief. At 40 years of age, Avraham recognized his creator, and as soon as he did, he began to teach the people of Ur Kasdim and to debate with them, telling them that their way was not the way of truth, and he broke the idols, telling the people that it is not proper to worship them. There is only one God, and only he should be worshipped and bowed to and sacrificed to trying to bring the world around to the recognition of the Creator. When his arguments began to convince them, the king decided that he has to be killed. But a miracle happened and he was saved. And then he increased his efforts and his message reached out to the world that there's only one God who deserves to be worshipped. And people had questions, he would answer it, until he had gathered around him thousands, tens of thousands, and they are known as Beis Avraham, Avraham's people. And he implanted in their heart this principle, this great principle, and he wrote books on the subject and, of course, taught it to Yitzchak, his son. And then Yitzchak went around teaching it, and he taught it to his son Yaakov. And so it was until Moshe came around. So the Rebbe says like this, what is it that Rambam is trying to tell us that is of halachic significance? It's a very nice story. Avram was a great guy. He was brilliant. I didn't know he wrote books, but I guess he did. Because if you want to really publicize an idea, you've got to write it, publish or, or perish. So he had to publish, so he wrote some books on the subject and influenced thousands and tens of thousands of people, bringing them back to the belief in God. This is all very nice. But what is the halachic importance or the halachic significance of this whole description of how idolatry came to be and how Avraham got past it or got beyond it? So before we get into the details, basically what the Rebbe says is Rambam is telling us that the mitzvah of not believing in idols is not fulfilled if you simply say, I won't believe it. I don't believe it. You're not fulfilling the mitzvah. Because most people, if you tell them nothing, do not believe in idols. They're not doing anything. So not to believe something is not much of a mitzvah. I mean, you can do that by neglect. It's like this comedian says, what is this, uh, this Olympic competition called the luge? What do you have to do? They throw you in the sled and you're gone. There's nothing you can do. <laughs> it's involuntary. 
You can win without trying. You can be asleep and win. So not to believe, not to believe is, is doing nothing. You can do that by neglect. What the mitzvah of not believing is that you have to come around to understanding how it can't be. Not that you choose not to believe. You have to be able to explain why the idol can't be an idol. But to simply say, nah, I don't believe it. That's nothing. That's not how you fulfill a mitzvah. So by telling us that idolatry was a mistake in reason and that Avraham discovered God by realizing the impossibility of the idol being an idol. It's not just he woke up and said, I don't want to. I don't want to worship the idol. He realized logically, compellingly, that this can't be. Logically, it can't be. So this is the first halacha that Rambam tells us about idolatry, is that it's not enough to simply say, yeah, I'm not interested. The other guy says, you know, the fifth commandment really worries me. Honor your father and mother? Oh, I don't know. I don't know if I have. I don't know if I'm doing it right. I don't know if I'm... The other commandments don't bother me so much, like make no graven images. I don't even know how to make a graven image. <laughs> That's not my problem. See, by doing that, you're not fulfilling the second commandment. By somebody saying, graven image, well, well, what's that? You haven't fulfilled the mitzvah. In order to fulfill the second commandment, thou shalt have no other gods, you have to have an understanding to where in your mind it is clear and logically conclusive that it can't be. There can be no other gods. But if it could be, you just don't want to believe it, that's not fulfilling the mitzvah. It ever points out that when Rambam describes Avraham's discovery, his realization, he says at 40 years of age. And that caused all the commentaries to get into a... The Gemara says it was at three, that he was three years old when he recognized his creator. Or at, 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 the other opinion is 13. But 40? So the Rebbe says, Rambam is not trying to tell you about Avraham's soul. He had a special soul, obviously. And because of his soul, he was connected to God on a spiritual level so that he felt God's presence and he recognized God soulfully through inspiration. But that's not relevant to halacha. What Rambam is trying to tell us is that Avraham came to a wise and mature understanding of the falsehood of the idol. And that's what he means that at the age of 40. Because 40 is the age of wisdom. So that's what Rambam is trying to tell you. That you have to work out an understanding, not an inspiration, not a soul quality, but an intelligence that tells you that idols cannot be. So what was the process that Avraham went through? Rambam really doesn't get into the details very much. He says he wondered, how does a planet move without being moved? Now, since it has to have a mover, 
something moves the planet. If something is moving the planet, then obviously the planet is not God. The mover is God. Now, why can't it be that the planet is God and it wants to move? God is God and he wants to create a world, so he creates it. So maybe the planet is God and it wants to spin. Now, of course, logically, there is the argument every movement has to be caused by something. But why can't God cause his own movement? So he is the movement, and he is also the mover. Why can't he be both? A person can inspire himself, can be moved by his own words or by his own thoughts. So why can't he move himself? So part of the argument, which is explained elsewhere in more detail, is that movement means to be in one place to the exclusion of another. What does it mean to move? To go from here to there, and by doing so, you're no longer here. Now you're there, and not here. The question is, how can that be true of God? How can God be in one place and not another? Now, why not? Aside from the fact that God is infinite, and how can infinite be limited to any limitation that you see on a being immediately tells you that that being is not self-sufficient. Because no thing, rationally, logically, would put a limit on itself. All limits, all restrictions, all finiteness is imposed. It has to be. Nothing makes itself finite when it could be infinite. In the laws of nature, everything seeks to preserve itself, not to restrict itself. So when you see that the sun can only be in one place at a time, you have to ask yourself, who did this to you? So the question of who is the mover is also the question of who is the dictator that says you can only go so far. You can only be so big. You can only have so much heat. So who made the sun what it is? Obviously it didn't make itself, because why would it restrict itself like that? It only has so much energy, it only has so much reach, and it only has one place it could be at a given time, either on this side of the world, of the earth, or on that side of the earth. Why can't it be on both sides at the same time? So Avraham's question was, who put restrictions on things? Now, that's the easy stuff. That's like the, the story with the, with the idols, that he smashed the idols, and he told his father that they smashed each other. And so I said, come on, that's ridiculous. They can't do that. He said, well, if they can't do that, then how can they be God? You can't be God sometimes. In certain things. <laughs> if you can't do everything, then, then you're not God. So that's the easy part. But there's a, there's a more difficult part to that. The more difficult part is, the argument goes that if something is restricted, someone stronger must have put that restriction on it. As we see in nature. If something metal rusts and decays, why? 
because there is a force stronger than it that eats away at it. It's not self-induced. Something stronger than it, the elements, wear away at it. All movement will eventually stop because gravity will eventually slow it down to where it stops. So a force stronger than it is making it behave that way. Okay, the more complicated question is, granted that God is God and he is more powerful than the stars and the sun and the moon, yet what makes it so terrible if we show a little great gratitude or a little honor to the stars and the moon? Without calling it God. Call it God with a little g. The wise, even in the times of idol worship, knew that there was a God beyond their gods. Pharaoh worshipped the Nile, he worshipped cows, he worshipped sheep, he worshipped himself, but he knew there was a God beyond. He just never heard of the God of Israel. So when the plagues came, the Egyptians all came running to Pharaoh and they said, Come on, this is the hand of God. I said the hand of sheep or the hand of the Nile. It was the hand of God. Because they knew there was a God, they just didn't think he was very relevant. The relevant God was the sheep and the cow and the Nile. So why is it so wrong to think that the stars deserve a little credit? A little credit. It's obviously not God because it can't move itself. God is the more powerful force. Okay, fine. So why can't I thank the stars? Why can't I thank my lucky stars? So then becomes the question of, do these planets, do these constellations have a will of their own? If they have no will of their own, who are you thanking? It's like thanking the glass for holding the ice. Why don't you thank the glass? Because the glass has no will. So it's not like he's doing you a favor. So what are you thanking him for? So if the stars have no will of their own, then, then it's ridiculous to thank them. What are you thanking them for? The only way you could thank them is if they do have a will of their own and they willingly carry out God's plan. So if the sun had a will of its own, but since God told it to spend its days warming the earth, that's what it does. Well, in that case, you've got to thank him. It's like thanking the waiter. Yeah, it's not his food. You thank him for bringing the food? It's not his food. He was told to do this. Yeah, but he doesn't have to. He's got a will of his own. So if he agrees to do it, he deserves a little thanks. So the question now is, why is it so wrong to assume that the planets or some angels have a will of their own and they willingly bring you God's blessings? You tip the, the waiter, you tip the bellboy, you tip the, the delivery boy. Why not, why not the sun, the moon, the angels? So in order to understand that, 
we have to understand what does it mean that God created the world. What does it mean created? It means that there was nothing, and yet God caused the world to be. If we understood that correctly, we would come to the following conclusions. Number one, God did not create the world. He is creating the world. Because if there was nothing and God caused existence to become, to be, then he has to keep causing it because if he doesn't cause it, there is nothing again. So creation is a constant process, which means on some nanosecond level, the world stops existing and then comes back into existence before you realize it was gone. So it's like a film where the frames move so fast that you don't notice the little black stripe in between them. But if you were to slow it down, there is no movement. There are just a bunch of stills. So the world doesn't just go on existing. It has to be recreated all the time. Now, if everything in creation is so dependent on its creator that it has to be constantly recreated, who are you thanking? Who are you thanking? The sun that had to be created just now because it can't exist on its own? And you're thanking the sun? To put it in more mystical terms. If you think of things as they appear then it might make sense to worship it. I mean, after all, there it is. It's got a lot of heat. It's got a lot of energy. Without it, we'd be lost or in big trouble. We have to learn how to breathe underwater, (laughs) which may not be easy. But that's if you're looking at the existence of the thing. If you think more of the soul of creation, which means the purpose of creation, What is the purpose of creation? Why would God create a world? It has to be so that the world would come to know him. That makes sense. The creator wants to express himself. So if we fail to see him, if we fail to recognize him, because we are distracted by the things he created, then the existence has lost its soul. It's lost its purpose. What's the point? Let's put it in different words. Creation is not a fact. It's a will. God wants to create the world. And you have to make that assumption because if God has to create the world, then he's not God anymore. That make sense? No? If there is something that compels God to create the world, then whatever is compelling him is the real God. Just like whatever moves the planet, the mover is God, not the planet. So if something moves God to create, then that mover is God, not him. And even if what moves him is a really good idea, well, then that idea is more powerful than him. 
So we have to assume that if the original being, free of all influences, alone in the universe, decides to create the world, it has to be because he wants, not because something makes him do it. Therefore, the essence of creation is his will. So if his will is the essence of creation, then when you look at something that doesn't have a will, of what value is that? Obviously, that is not a creator. Because a creator has a will. A thing without a will can't be a creator. So no matter how powerful it is, and no matter how essential it is to the existence of the earth, you can't call it a creator if it doesn't have a will. And by extension, you can't thank it if it doesn't have a will. So they have this analogy. In a kingdom, people who want to see the king or need something from him have to follow certain protocol. You can't just walk into the palace and knock on his door. You've got to go through channels. You have to have connections, protects you. And that's the right way of doing things. If you approach the king directly, you're violating the rules. But what happens if the king has a daughter and she needs something from her father? So she goes through channels. She talks to the governor, to the minister, to the senator, to the chief minister, until the request gets to the king. Now, instead of being pleased that protocol was followed, the king is going to be very insulted. I'm your father. You went to a stranger? Talk about family issues? God created the world because he wants a relationship. For a person to say, well, uh, so I sent you the message through this idol, and I... That's not a relationship. That's a violation of the relationship. So part of the mistake that the people made in their first assumption, even before they were lying, the assumption was God probably wants us to honor him by honoring the ministers. That would be true if there was no personal relationship between us. But being God's children, then you can't compare it to a king with his ministers. You have to compare it to a king with his daughter. You think the king wants his daughter to honor the ministers? To bow to the ministers? On the contrary, he expects his ministers to bow to his daughter. So this is the, um, the real violation behind idol worship. It's not that God is uh, insulted. God's pride is hurt. Why are you talking to him? Talk to me. This is a relationship. If you're talking to him, then the relationship comes to a dead end. And if you're talking to him, you obviously don't understand our relationship. So you don't know what I'm all about. You don't know what I'm after. You don't know what I want. So what good is there in showing respect or honor to the minister when it's ruining the whole relationship? Avraham discovered that there's only one God and that the idols can't possibly be God. 
Not that they're not. They cannot be, for obvious logical reasons. But then the Rambam says, so he ran around teaching everybody, and he taught thousands of people, and then he taught Yitzchak, and Yitzchak taught Yaakov, and Yaakov. Why is that important? Where's the halacha in that? Fine, you're telling us that in order to deny idolatry, you have to have logical explanation for why it cannot be true. Great. So Avraham arrived at that conclusion that they cannot be God. So stop the dis- end the description there. And yet Rambam adds a whole other paragraph. Once Avraham realized this, he ran around teaching everybody. What is that? Where is the halacha in that? If it were simply a matter of fact, is the Son God or is it not God? Is God really God? Is he not God? I mean, what's the fact? Just the facts. You come to the realization that God is God, nothing else is. Okay, fine. Now you got the facts straight. Why would you run around telling everybody? Why would you go on a crusade to tell the whole world that they're making a mistake and that they shouldn't believe this and they should smash the idols? What are you making a crusade out of it? They're making a mistake, you don't make a mistake. Fine. They're in different words. Where does this passion come from? To run around, make sure that everybody knows. What is that all about? It's like if you were to discover that uh, Atkins' diet is really not that good. Okay, what are you going to do? Run around, tell everybody? Some people think low carb, high protein, low protein, high carb, whatever, you know. And you decide, no, 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 the, the low carb is not so good. And you've got good arguments, so. You're going to run around arguing with people? You write a book, make some money. But other than that, I mean, Rambam says, Avraham dedicated his life to running around and telling people not to worship idols and to recognize the true God. Why? Because that's the nature of the issue. We're not debating facts here. Creation is not a fact. Creation is a desire. God desires a relationship. So once you realize this, you can't just sit there and be content. If God wants a relationship and everybody's bowing to idols, you got to do something. So the mistake of the original idolaters was that they saw God as a fact. This is the big guy, this is the little guy, this is the... And you got to give a little honor to the big guy and a little less honor to the smaller guy, but it, it was all very mechanical. Avraham's realization came when it dawned on him that God is not mechanical. He's not a big God with little gods. He wants something. And that's why he's the only God, because only his will brought the world into existence. But once you realize that, then the logical conclusion is that you can't just sit home being content that you know God. Because what you know about God is that he wants something. Well, if he wants, then he's got to get it. So you start telling people to give God what he wants. And that becomes your passion in life until you have thousands and tens of thousands of people doing what God wants. Of course, Avraham took it to such an extent that even if they were going to kill him for it, 
it wasn't going to discourage him. Not because he was a hero, not because he was so stubborn, but because the realization of what God is wouldn't let him rest. God is not passive. He didn't create the world and then sit back and watch what happens. So these are the lessons, the halachic implications of what the Rambam says. Number one, it's a terrible mistake, which was the beginning of all idolatry. It's a terrible mistake to assume that God wants you to honor his ministers because God, to us, is not only a king, he's also our father. And therefore it would be a violation of family privacy or whatever to involve ministers, even if they are ministers, to involve them in family affairs. Secondly, it's a terrible mistake to think that the ministers deserve thanks because they have no will of their own. And they can't have a will of their own because they are the product of God's will. God is the mover. His will is what created them. So their will is not a creative one. Their will doesn't create. They themselves were created. So to worship them would mean to attribute to them some active part in creation, which they didn't have because they are creations themselves. Then Rambam says, in order to fulfill the mitzvah of not believing in these idols, you have to be logically convinced that they cannot be. As Avraham was when he came to the conclusion that only God could be God and that none of the idols could possibly be God. And then thirdly, or that fourthly, once you realize that God is God, then you cannot be content with the knowledge that you have it right, but you have to run around, even at the expense of your comfort and and lifestyle and maybe even life itself, You have to run around and make sure that the world is what God wants it to be or needs it to be. So all of this, Rambam is telling us, without spelling it out, because God's purpose and God's will and God's need and our... This is all beyond the halachic realm. And so Rambam says it, but doesn't actually spell it out, and you have to read a little bit between the lines. But then once you understand this and you look at Rambam, there's no other way of understanding Rambam. Why else would he say any of this? And yet people have studied Rambam for hundreds of years, and if you ask the average scholar on Rambam, what is that beginning of... Well, it's it's kind of an introduction. But it's not. It is the halacha. What do you think?